Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line with our guest, Justin Gautier and Matt Offenbacher. Welcome back. Thanks all the listeners for listening out there. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do us a huge favor and review and uh, share it with all your friends, family, and foes even. Uh, Matt, a topic I'd like to discuss today and something that uh, it's not quite as common, um, you know, for, you know, within the lower 48, but it's certainly something that does come up. Uh, there's some certain basins that uh, are certainly hot. There's high pressure, also known as HPHT or a few other ones. So what do you think? We should dive into this or what? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Well, why don't we go ahead and start off with just a definition of what a hot and high pressured well would be? So, uh, you know, we start with you hear HPHT. I actually have an interesting story about this. So at my former employer, apparently one of their preceding companies uh, said, hey, we're going to differentiate ourselves on these wells. So we're going to call it HTHP. Well, everybody else was calling it HPHT. <laughs> and so sort of trained up to always call it HTHP. Right. And then, um, but the rest of the industry has always called it HPHT. And uh, I think a few years ago, they kind of gave up and we... Uh, started calling it HPHT. Okay. Um, but you know, to date now you still hear people swap the T and the P and, um, you know, the, the fact is that I I think people try and categorize it, which sort of makes sense with, you know, the limits of tools and chemistry, but we know that's always changing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so HPHT is typically defined as kind of the 20,000 PSI and 350 to 400 degree bottom hole temperature. Um, but I, I also want to point out that, you know, leading up to that, sometimes you can actually have low pressure, high temperature. Uh, I mean, think about, you know, a, a drilling into a pressured water zone, for example. Right. Um, or that would be a high pressure, low temperature. Um, but uh, I've, I've been involved in wells where we had 150 degree bottom hole temperature, and we also had a 16 and a half pound mud weight. Um, and that requires some pretty significant precautions. Mm-hmm. Um, you combine temperature and pressure, and it gets worse, but I think it's, it's important to point out that they don't always have to be related, but a lot of the precautions can be the same, right. or at least half of them are because you've got both factors to consider. Right. Um, but you can actually, you know, as, as we've gotten more extreme, there's, there's another definition of ultra HPHT. So beyond 400 degrees, so basically between 400 and 500 degrees and 30 to 35,000 PSI, um, that's what you'd categorize up to ultra HPHT. Um, and the fact is that, uh, you know, there's fewer and fewer wells you think as you, as you approach these extremes, um, and you can take it even further and you can get up to extreme HPHT, uh, which is anything above that. And and the reason I give ranges is a couple of different reasons, but depending on what publication you're reading or which operator or service provider is talking, um, their definitions will fluctuate, but typically between those ranges. Gotcha. So with those high pressures and high temperatures, uh, you know, most of us are familiar with temperature gradients. So is it, is it all, is it pretty standard across the world where the deeper you go, the hotter it is, or are there different temperature gradients depending on where you're drilling? It depends on where you're drilling. Um, you know, when I worked in, in Southeast Asia, you talk about like the ring of fire, uh, it, it's, gets pretty hot, pretty fast in some areas. Mm. And 
you know, even in California, think about they do a lot of geothermal drilling. Well, it's still that same sort of area. Um, Indonesia was just crazy. There were volcanoes everywhere. Oh, wow. uh, so it was, it was one of those deals where it was like, yeah, there's, there's some hot stuff down there. Uh, no doubt. Hmm. Um, yeah. So it just depends on, on where you are. Of course. So on, within the lower 48, you know, for our, our U.S. listeners, where would you typically find something HPHT here in the U.S.? So South Texas can get pretty heavy. I don't know if necessarily would like the pressures, you know, they're pretty heavy muds um, and uh, pretty high temperatures, you know, in the 400s. Uh, Mississippi, Louisiana area has some, some fairly hot uh, wells. Um, so that's the lower 48. I think, I think kind of the talk of the town um, is always like the Gulf of Thailand has always been notorious for being very hot wells, very fast drilling, but very hot wells. Okay. Um, and uh, so kind of a lot of the case histories you hear about now involve, you know, 450 degree bottom hole temperatures in that area. Hmm. Do we see that um, often in the Gulf as well? Uh, above 400, not often, but yes, definitely. And, and I think that's an important thing to point out is the Gulf of Mexico in, in the U.S. has some, some pretty hot wells in some extreme areas. Uh, that just between it all uh, can be quite challenging because you think about HPHT on land, um, you know, surface temperatures are what they are, but try and drill at four or 500 degrees Fahrenheit down hole and then circulate that up for 8,000 feet at a 34 degrees, you know, mud line and, and sea temperature. Yeah. And then you have the mud coming out at surface. You have this huge thermal gradient where perhaps, you know, we've talked about low clay or clay free muds in the past. That's that's a really good application for those. Mm, makes sense. So, uh, would you say a lot of systems have been designed uh, around a lot of these high pressure, high temperature areas? Because I mean, a lot of obviously the chemistry, and we can get into that. But th- there's a lot of considerations that have to be made, not only from a planning standpoint, but just you know from a rig standpoint as well, right? Definitely. Um, I, I mean, just e- even think about uh, what is it like if you've got a 150 or you know 200 degrees at the at the flow line. Um, it's, you've got vapors that are, you know, it can be pretty noxious if that's a enclosed pit room or Mm -hmm. just not a lot of, uh, you're going to have a lot more evaporation. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll bring out chiller units. Right. Um, Have you used been on a well with chiller unit or I've been involved in projects where we've talked about them. Um, my question for the listening audience is if you've been around them, are they more reliable than they used to be? Because they were a really huge contributor of non-productive time in the past where mm. it was, uh, you know, my, my question was always the, the reluctance to use them when we knew we were going to have hot temperatures at the flow line was, um, we just, if this thing breaks down, are we going to shut down operations again? Right. Um, but, uh, y- you know, a lot of operators have policies as far as what they want at flow line temperature. Think of, you know, if you got really, really hot, you'd have like an auto ignition temperature. You'd be pushing on the mud where it, you oh, know, wow. So it, it could be pretty dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and, and so obviously there's, there's precautions you take. So yeah, it, it, it affects the rig design. Um, and in fact, high pressure, high temperature, you, uh, I don't know if you heard of project 20 K, but it was getting BOPs and other systems all lined up. So full, full working system pressures could handle 20,000 PSI offshore. Oh, wow. Um, and now they're trying to even push that, but Jeez. you know, just as you push those extremes, it becomes you know, an order of magnitude more difficult because you've got to use more exotic materials. You've got to, you know, tighter tolerances. It just becomes more and more challenging. Of course. Uh, so going back to the mud side of things, what do we have to consider when doing mud checks? Are they different than your standard mud checks or are there certain 
considerations we have to take when doing mud checks? I mean, I think the big thing, you know, leaving maintenance outside of it, but just a mud check is um, the mud comes out really, really hot uh, or hotter than usual. And so there's a lot of things we do. Okay, if, if we're drilling 150 degree bottom hole temperature or whatever, take the mud weight, we're pretty close to where we started. Um, but normally in these more extreme conditions, you have a very narrow fracture gradient. You need to keep an eye on, on these things. You may be worried about well control. Um, and so the mud's going to come be seem lighter if you check it right. You know, you just catch a sample right off the flow line and um, start doing your check. Mm. Uh, similarly, you know, you've got to let it cool for rheology. You do other things. And I've heard guys who've worked on these wells say, you know, in deep water, we would, we would, we would chill the mud. We'd have a chiller unit to cool the mud to 40 degrees Fahrenheit because most operators wanted 40, 100, 150 rheology temperatures. Oh. Here they were using chillers just to get it down to 120 to do uh, the rheology. Right. Because um, it was just taking so much time to wait for it to cool. Right. Speaking of mud checks, uh, you know, we've been involved with some pretty heavy tenders over time. And uh, a lot of times they'll actually get, you know, to standardize it or to check you'll do uh, mud checks, high pressure, high temperature mud checks. And that's something we've done in our lab, right? Can you speak a little bit on that? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good point. So like, for example, rheology is fairly interesting as, as uh, temperature goes up. Um, and so we have a high pressure, high temperature viscometer. Um, they're, they're quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, don't, we don't use it a ton, but sometimes somebody wants a profile. And you can actually get what is the viscosity at this pressure and temperature. And you'll create these curves, and you can load it into your hydraulic software. Um, you can you can kind of model conditions. Uh, and, and what's sort of interesting is uh, they all sort of got into this competition, the providers of this equipment. Um, and so it was all more extreme, more extreme. And so a lot of them now are rated to that extreme, you know, 600 degrees Fahrenheit, 40,000 PSI, and um, you know, then someone else goes, well, ours is rated to 45,000 PSI. And I was like, I just can't think of anywhere I would need that. <laughs> but um, I guess for the price you're paying, you you wouldn't want to buy one that couldn't meet all of your needs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and the most extreme, I, I, I don't want to overlook this, but relatively lower temperature or low mud weights with high temperatures, a lot of that stuff's geothermal drilling, right. uh, where you push 600 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and my experience was, when we were doing those kinds of things, is we drilled blind. Um, and basically, you just needed hole cleaning to uh, carry cuttings up into a cavern or vug above you, above the bit. Yeah. And you just kept drilling ahead. And, like, your mandate was just to keep the hole full. Like, how fast can you mix? Right. Um, I wonder if, uh, and you may be able to answer this, like, obviously, and we can get into additives next, but we've got, you know, a certain suite of chemicals that are able to withstand these temperatures. Is there different bit selections that would... Are, are rated for different temperatures based off different metallurgy, I would imagine, or, uh, I, I mean, I honestly don't know, but I, I'd imagine there's a lot of considerations as you, as you push those extremes huh. because, you know, I don't know if it would even be the bits, but it might be the seals, you know, other yeah. things you have to think about. Sure. Um, you know, in the same way, like, like directional tools and, and that kind of thing, just try and imagine how, how robust these tools have to be. And, um, my experience is that, you know, they don't get used a lot and they tend to fail. You know, they're expensive. They, uh, you know, they're rated not to fail, but uh, your failure rate's going to be higher just because they're not as proven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it was just interesting. I was actually, uh, we're offshore in Indonesia on the, in the West Seno field. And my dad back in the 80s 
you know, sole directional tools. And then he's like, yep, there's a lot of BHAs down there. No kidding. Because um, Unical, who owned the field at the time, just didn't mess around trying to jar if they got stuck or anything like that. They would just shoot off and sidetrack uh, because the tools weren't that reliable. The temperatures were so extreme. Right. It's like, give me a fresh one and let's just get this done. <laughs> um, and so they're sort of known as, as oil field cowboys, but they were drilling some fairly extreme conditions, re- particularly relative to the equipment available at the time. No kidding. Huh. Seems interesting. What, uh, so let's get into the additives. Obviously when, you know, the deeper you get, the hotter it gets, uh, there's certainly different chemistry that's happening. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about how that affects regular chemicals and then, you know, what we've done as an industry, uh, to be able to drill into these hot zones, uh, you know, with regards to different drilling fluid additives. Sure. I mean, I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting because there's sort of this sequence of when things break down. So your typical starches, uh, xanthan gum, you know, some of that stuff in the water-based mud realm, uh, a lot of amine chemistry, which you might use uh, for uh, an organoclay, an oil-based mud, uh, or even your some emulsifiers. Most most hold up quite a bit beyond that, but um, those things start to break down between about 250 275 degrees, and in fact, between 275 and 300. For water-based additives, starch and, and xanthan gummies, there's a pretty clear drop-off. Mm. Um, and it's, it's not always precise. So in, in the lab world, when we're testing these additives, there's kind of a few things you have to consider. One is it'll, it might survive a 16-hour hot roll and look okay, which is fine. Or I might be able to throw some stabilizers in. And so you think, shoot, I'm just going to burn through a lot of chemical, but I can maintain this. However... What is this mud going to look like when I need to run casing? Or mm. um, you, even then, we can typically get away with casing running. But if I have a five-day logging suite planned um, or any kind of extended downtime, um, I'm either trashing all that mud and hoping it didn't catastrophically fall apart and just you know displacing it with fresh stuff when I get back to drilling, um, or I have to go to synthetics, things that are less likely to break down. So above 275 in water-based mud, we we have some stabilizers to inhibit oxidation, uh, uh, formates, uh, you can just add a little bit of, of sodium formate, for example, that'll help stabilize it 10 or 15 pounds per barrel. Uh, Magox is good. There's a couple of other things that, uh, that work great to, to buy you a little bit more space on the temperature gradient. Once you get above 300, um, it gets particularly more difficult and, and you're more likely to look at synthetic polymers. Mm. Um, and, and as you get hotter and hotter, uh, you're, you're more and more likely to look at uh, resins and, and that kind of thing. And you get into some environmental questions there. So, I mean, I mean there's two things. One is, is water-based mud uh, in HPHD conditions that's not, it's, it's being stressed thermally. There's a good chance of getting stuck, which is why oil-based mud is so attractive. Sure. Um, but, uh, but these additives, you can, you can keep working your way up. Um, but there are some of these things that degrade and give off things you don't want in your mud. Um, on the oil-based mud side, you know, it's, it's um, you know, amidoamine, polyamides will probably get you up to 450. Um, you want to get above that with oil-based mud, you need to take n- nitrogen out of the equation. Um, you might be able to modify some of these molecules to get you up to 500 degrees. Um, but that, you know, emulsifier is important, then we got to go to filtration control additives. Right. And you're probably going to go away from your natural stuff to synthetics. So a lot of um, Filtration control additives are like tire composite material, like precursors to tires and mm. um, it, interesting stuff like that, maybe in asphalt. Yeah. Uh, but your organoclay, 
you're probably going to change that out. And, or, or even, um, instead of bentonite or something, you would use, uh, um, uh, like a sepulite, oh, uh, wow. something that, that's not going to flocculate because, um, at these higher temperatures, a lot, you can see a lot of flocculation in water-based mud. Um, at the higher weights, you're trying to disperse everything because solids and gelation can become quite the challenge. Um, so like the whole equation changes. And so you're mixing this stuff in the lab. You're probably going to static age it for three to five days and see how it holds together. Um, and there's also kind of the question of what, what am I comfortable with? Uh, because when you're pushing the extended limit, mm. all this stuff gets more and more expensive. You get more and more into the unknown. And so you say, okay, can I tolerate this or not? And am I actually, does this more expensive additive mitigate risk or introduce another wild card into the situation? Um, but sometimes we can poor boy it. Sometimes we just trash the mud that was sitting in the hole for a couple of days and um, bring out some new stuff. Uh, if you think about um, really, really heavy muds above about 17 pounds, and we talked about sag, uh, you're not as likely to have sag once you get that much solids. Okay, uh, why is that? Uh, basically, the, the bayrite sort of supports itself. There, by volume, there's so many solids in the mud that um, it's hard for it to separate enough to actually have a, a separated column. Right. Um, not to say it couldn't have it. It's just very, very, very unlikely. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, I don't know. Obviously, there's a lot to think about. <laughs> no um, kidding. So, yeah. uh, aside from, you know, the additives, different things that we have to be obviously cognitive of, um, what about, like, trips and, you know, does ECD change, compressibility, things of that nature? Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, a lot of the pro- mud programs will have a surface mud weight that they recommend. Okay. But it's because you've done all of the modeling to figure out what your downhole equivalent is. And sometimes the swing can be pretty big. So uh, we've got to account for thermal expansion, especially oil-based mud, thermal expansion, but then I've got a heavy mud, so it's compressing as well. Um, brine, what water can technically compress um, a little bit. As you get more extreme, it can, it can have an effect. And you've got a ratio of that. You've got, you know, your solids aren't going to compress, but you, you've got to account for those ratios. Um, to model what your downhole equivalent mud weight is going to be. Yeah. And you likely have a tighter ECD window because you've got very heavy mud um, that is behaving, uh, you know, is, is experiencing a wide variety of temperature. Um, and so, uh, I mean, we call it trip margin. So sometimes that can be through ECD that you're inducing enough mud weight and then you put heavier mud to get out of the hole. Well, similarly here, um, I have to account for what my mud weight is going to look like static. Um, Parts of it are going to cool. So what is the mud weight I actually need to make sure I'm properly applying pressure to the formation while I get out of the hole and sit static? So it, um, it's a juggling act, and that's why you need to have your modeling dialed in. These wells are a bit more serious, uh, especially if you're in exploration or you don't have as much experience in the area. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. So you mentioned earlier uh, stuck pipe being, you know, I wouldn't say common, but it's there's a, there's a likelihood of that happening when you get into these hotter and these high pressure zones. So, so what's going on downhole that would make that a uh, little more, I guess, more, more conducive to stuck pipe? Well, one, you've got a heavier mud weight, right? So no question in all likelihood that heavier mud weight is maybe not equivalent to, you may not have a, a an even pressure distribution. So that mud weight may be required to keep back a flow higher up and lower down, um, you know, it may be that the pore pressure is much, much lower and you're trying to drill that zone in one casing run. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I've been in, I've been in situations where we had five, 6,000 PSI overbalance. Um, 
And it was basically, if you didn't keep the pipe moving in the rotary, when you went to make a connection, you were stuck um, and you were not getting free. Um, and, and so you have to have all of your stuck pipe mitigation procedures in place. Talking about high temperature, we think about the thermal degradation of some of these things. It may be if I continually introduce fresh material, I can kind of get away with some things to a point. Um, and so you could sit static for a while. You could, ha- you could have some other situation that happens um, where something, some filter cake component is degrading a little bit and your fluid loss is higher than what you're seeing on surface. Um, or you just need to run it so tight because of that high overbalance that you're consuming a lot of chemical because it's being degraded. Um, and you know, people don't like how much money you're spending, um, and you get stuck. So it's just, it's something you really have to watch out for. And it's such a juggling act. Um, so the, the risk is definitely there and there's a lot of drilling practices you can keep an eye on to prevent it. Right. What about, uh, with regards to solids, I mean, obviously solids control is important in, in every aspect of drilling fluids, but uh, does the temperature have a big effect on solids, um, things like gelation? Like, do they affect your gel strengths quite a bit? Can you touch on that? Absolutely. So, uh, as I mentioned, like in water-based mud, you're more likely to see flocculation if you have some reactive solids in there. Um, in many cases, when you get to really hot, high-temperature wells, the clays are pretty dead mm. but um it's uh, gelation can be a, a risk some of these things the way they break down they sort of interact with one another as they go um so gelation's a big deal um and bear in mind you've got your reactive solids but you also got a ton of solids if you got heavy mud weight mm-hmm. um and so you're probably going to have an, an oil-based mud just something to bear in mind These, you're probably drilling with a 90 10 or a 95 5 well, water ratio you may be using a blend of, of iron oxide and bayrite because you're trying to keep your solids under control. Right. Um, so you're not drilling with toothpaste, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, there, there's just a, a lot to, um, a lot to consider in that the nature of these fluids is going to be a little different. It's probably going to drill slower, but things are going to happen faster to the mud. Um, so you just got, you got to be prepared. Right. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, with those heavy mud weights, I remember being, uh, offshore and we built a, I think it was like an 18.3 or an 18.5 slug to come out of the hole and uh yeah it was interesting because the the slug had to be prepared exactly to spec because it looked like pudding like it was mm. so thick it was oil based mud and, and so you, i mean with that with the agitators on like nothing was moving and so you had to have a certain amount of wetting agent in there which you always do anyways when you're building a slug but uh it was crazy because when i did the calculations you know volumetrically how much actually free liquid there was compared to how much solids was in there i don't remember the numbers but it was like very eye-opening to think like, wow, we're literally pumping something that's almost like a full solid. Yeah. And, and I mean, when you think about oil water ratio, and this will be a, a, an episode to come is, uh, so that's your percent of your water relative to oil, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the solids present. So that, that's not even there. So when you say I've got a 90, 10, you've got a few droplets of water acting like something and you may have 30% Bayrite in that mud. It, it's, yeah. um, and you need more and more oil to get the dispersion. So uh, it's it's not as straightforward as as you might think, where it's like, oh well, I got all that oil in there. And no, it's <laughs> relative to the solids there. You you may be fifty fifty. You know, it, it may not be anywhere near what you were thinking. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, well, Matt, those are all the questions I had with regards to high pressure, high temperature type wells and sort of the drilling fluid stuff. Is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about, or other you know considerations we need to think of before wrapping up here? 
I mean, I, I guess the last one is is corrosion and, and compatibility just because mm. everything happens faster, right? And yeah, so good point. Corrosive environment, using water-based mud, uh, there's a lot of case histories of people encountering acid gases and that sort of thing. Um, so you, and because of, of the breakdown, even when you have a stable fluid, you will probably use a lot more chemical. Um, and so it just, it requires a lot more attention. Um, and, and I think sometimes it depends on if you're new to the area or I think in South Texas, they've been doing it for so long that everybody's pretty comfortable with the way things are done. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, you know, another listener interaction opportunity, if, if you've been on one of these wells, uh, we'd love to hear just kind of your, your perspective relative to what I'm characterizing. Cause I haven't physically been on, I haven't physically been on any of these wells. I've been involved in projects where we've done the planning or done the lab testing. Um, and, and certainly had to think through some of these things and, and people who mentored me kind of pointed some things out right. that hopefully I'm repeating correctly. <laughs> uh, but all, all that being said, uh, they're pretty challenging. We don't come across them all the time. And, um, it just, it makes you aware that when you feel like you're pretty comfortable running mud, uh, you, you get humbled cause you're like, wow, maybe, maybe I don't know as much as I thought. Uh, this is, this is pretty intense. Cool. No, you're exactly right. And if any of the listeners out there are either on a job or they've been involved with one recently, maybe even some of the technologies changed. I mean, I haven't personally been on one, uh, you know, as a rig hand or a mud engineer, but again, you know, there's some stuff that we do in here uh, within our company that we've, you know, had to plan for. And, and we, you know, every once in a while it comes up, but uh, certainly we love the feedback. So we'll put uh, the link in the show notes for our uh, email. So feel free to email us or hit us up on LinkedIn. Again, we appreciate the support. Hopefully everyone's having a great 2020. Matt, anything else? That's it. Y'all take care. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.